Welcome to V1 The Podcast, an aviation podcast where we dive into the world of aviation. My name is Nick Herring, and I'm your host. You're listening to Season 1, where we talk about aviation careers. In this episode, we sit down with Mike Godfrey, an air traffic controller for the Bakersfield Tower and Tracom. We discuss steps to being an air traffic controller, the training process involved, and you guessed it, much more. So without further ado, welcome aboard to Season 1, Episode 3. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to V1, the podcast. It's Nick Herring, your host. Last episode, we talked with Corey Scow, corporate pilot and mastermind behind the pilot vlogs on YouTube. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you go check it out. But in today's episode, we're talking ATC. And with me today is an air traffic controller for the Bakersfield Tower and Tracon, Mike Godfried. What's up, Mike? Thanks for coming out. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So in addition to being an air traffic controller, you have another job or title called local safety council. Why don't you tell people what the heck that is and ultimately what you're responsible for? So local safety council is something that the FAA and NACA, National Air Traffic Controllers Association, our union, came up with uh, as a process for both management and and controllers to work through local issues. Uh, And what I mean by local issues is issues at your specific facilities. So some of the stuff that we've been working through lately here, if anyone's familiar with Meadows, runway construction was a big issue. So trying to mitigate risks with that. Um, new approaches were put in for the, new, for the smaller runway here, and we had to go through some of that. And then what we'll talk about later, the, uh, all the new radar training is something that mm. we're really working on and trying to go through that. It's a process that we can all get together and put something on the board that has an issue or we see coming up as an issue and try to fix it before it happens. So. Cool, cool. So first things first, let's talk about your background. What's your story? How did you get to where you are today? So, um, let's see. Growing up, I always wanted to fly. I went to Embry-Riddle in Daytona Beach. I started out as an engineer there. Uh, did not like engineering at all. And uh, they have the air traffic program there. So I took one of the classes. I enjoyed it. I thought there was something that kind of fit me well, and I liked the way it went and how everyone um, acted there, I guess is the best way to put it. So I swapped majors to air traffic, graduated in December of 2009, with a bachelor's in air traffic management and a minor in meteorology. Wow. Uh, after, yeah, I know it's a lot of words for just saying I went to Riddle, essentially. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, after that, I actually went back to school while waiting to get hired by the FAA. I got my uh, aircraft dispatch certification just kind of as a backup. Um, you know, it was at that point with the amount of furloughs and stuff that were happening in the government, it was getting hard to get hired. So I wanted a backup in case I couldn't get in. Uh, never ended up using it, but I thought it was something nice to have. Uh, after that, got hired by Raytheon as a contractor of the FAA. I worked as a remote pilot operator, or what we call RPOs, essentially um, at the academy where we do all of our training in Oklahoma City. I was a pseudo pilot, so I yeah. acted as a pilot while they were training on the simulators. So if oh, a controller was training, they'd say climb, maintain 4,000. I would type in the machine, make the aircraft climb to 4,000, and then read it back like a pilot would. Oh, that's cool. Uh, after that, spent a year there, uh, got an RPO gig at Cleveland Tower and Tracon, did that for a year until I uh, shipped out to Bakersfield, essentially. So Awesome. So is there a, how, does, how does someone become ATC? We heard your, you know, the path you got here, but what are different ways of, of becoming air traffic controller? So um, you can obviously go to college and get your CTI degree, that's what they're called when you get a degree in air traffic. Um, and you can be hired through a CTI bid. I think they still have CTI bids coming out now. 
There's an off-the-street bid, which is just anyone who's interested can apply, or there's prior experience bids, which are prior military or um, any sort, of, anything like that that are a bid for that. So essentially, they're all online through USA Jobs. You apply, um, they pick you, you know, based on your experience or how you did on some of the tests we do before we get hired, stuff like that. Once you're hired, you go to the academy in Oklahoma City or the schoolhouse, what we call it, and you do your basic, basic training there. And what I mean by that is you'll be a tower um, selected, tracon selected, or com combination of the two, or center. And you'll do basic tower, basic tracon, or basic radar, or, or sorry, basic center. And once you pass the academy, if you pass the academy, you get sent to your facility and you actually start training there. Um, the big thing about air traffic is um, that all of your training is so facility dependent. You could spend 20 years at one facility, and then when you transfer somewhere else, you're a trainee again until you learn that specific, you know, airport layout or the airspace or the rules. It's, right. it's so specific to where you're So you at, know the so. job at that point, but it's Yeah, it's you know the, know the basics. Basics, clear to land, clear to take off sort of deal. <laughs> and then you got to figure out which runway you're going to do it on. So, What sort of uh, qualities do you think someone needs to possess to be able to um, You know, when we talk about this to high schoolers or anyone that's looking to get into um, you know, and the FAA has a list of, you know, qualities that they think um, are a plus, and they certainly are. To me, the biggest thing is, Show up to work and give it all you got. You know, this isn't uh, rocket science per se. It, it is a lot of math. It can be a lot of math, but it's not complex math. You know, it's just adding, subtraction, some fractions here or there. Um, you know, I'm one of those guys that didn't do amazing in high school, right. you know, <laughs> um, didn't do amazing in college. You don't need to be super smart. You don't need to know everything about airplanes I think one of my favorite examples, uh, one of the guys that just certified here about a month ago was uh, a heavy mechanic in the Marines. Mm. Quite literally did not know what an airplane was. Right, wow. And now 15 months later, he's certified here. That's cool. So. Uh, is one thing I do hear people say all the time is I would love to be an air traffic controller, but I can't talk fast enough. Is, is uh, that you a... will learn that by doing it. <laughs> I absolutely guarantee that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the language thing is something, especially if you're just getting into aviation or if you're just starting to listen to air traffic, you, know, you can go online and listen to some of the feeds. It is a different language, but as you know as a pilot, as I know as a controller, the longer you sit there and listen to it, the more and more familiar you get. And yeah, it just becomes another language to you. So yeah, it does sound foreign in the beginning. Um, we will teach you how to say everything correctly. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really not as bad as it sounds okay. per se. But people would still have to be somewhat articulate i guess right if yeah you know one of the requirements the official requirements you have to be able to read and speak english clearly okay. is something that is listed on the fa you also have to be 18 years or older i believe right now don't quote me on this but i think it's um i was hired five years ago so it's mm. changed since then but okay uh, i think it's a combination of three years of either college or work experience to be selected 18 years or older u.s citizen you have to pass a drug test a psych test a security check and um, I believe they're still doing a sort of testing for it as well based on your aptitude. But uh, uh, quite honestly, I don't worry about the hiring process nearly as much as I used to five years ago. Okay. So. <laughs> um, how much with the hiring process, how much, so how much time we talked about what we do or what you guys do when you get essentially hired and then, and then get put out in the field, but how much time from the, the point that you get hired to where you are at your facility how much time do you think that normally takes? So for the academy, say you got a class date and you started January 1st at the academy. 
I believe right now you're at the academy for between 12 and 16 weeks of basic, you know, they do something called basics now, which is basic airplane stuff, climbed is how lift works and everything, mm-hmm. type aircraft, all that stuff. Then you go into air traffic. And then when you get to your facility, it's between, uh, depending on your level of the facility and the amount of trainees they have, I'd say a minimum probably of a year up to three or four years at a center. Um, so probably total time frame from being, you know, signing your paperwork and showing up first day to sitting there by yourself and working traffic by yourself would be anywhere from a year and a half to five years, depending on where you're going. Do you have a choice in where you go initially? When right you start now, out? I don't believe you do. I think the process now is um, top score picks on the list of facilities they give you. Hmm. So say Anchorage needs two slots, Bakersfield needs two slots, uh, Hawthorne needs two slots, and Burbank needs two slots. Let's just pick everything that's around us. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, top two people get to pick first and wherever they want to go out of that list, they can go to so on and so forth. So what makes them the top two? Like what, what? Usually based on staffing need right now, okay. I think is how they're doing it. So um, the facilities that need people the most are getting people. Uh, I see. Okay. Well, that makes a little more sense. I understand now. Now we mentioned the word facilities. So there's obviously tracons and centers. What are the different types of facilities and what do they do? So three types, tower, tracon, and center. Now, tower, some tower and tracons are combined like we are here. The easiest way to think of it is towers work the airport. Um, the way I try to describe it is they're the, they're the parking garages. You know, they, they get you into the garage, they get you to parking, and then out of parking and back up into the air. Tracons are um, terminal radar approach controls, um, really approaches and departure controllers, if any of you pilots out there. And uh, they're the on-ramps and off-ramps, essentially. They, yeah. they climb you up to altitude and get you on course. They descend you down to the airport and get you lined up for landing at the airport. And then centers are really like the highways in the sky. They, you know, they do mostly en route uh, traffic and stuff like that. And the, um, is there, how do you, can you start at any one of those specifically out the gate or do they start you at a tower and then you move on? Anyone to... right now. Okay. So I started here. This is my first facility. So what we call an up down, which means it's a tower and a tracon. We call it that because the tower is upstairs on the top and the tracon's downstairs. So okay. up down there, there's your lingo. Sort of deal. <laughs> um, but uh, there are people that start at centers. There are people that start at the highest level facilities. There's people that start low level facilities. It's really just based on staffing at this point. Is there a benefit to working at either one? Like, it, do you think like what it could be anything from scheduling to the pace of the job? Do you do you personally think well, that one's better? Any center another? controller that listens to this is just gonna make fun of me because <laughs> I'm not a center puke. I don't want. It. I don't ever want oh, to go okay. to a center. Um, that's just me. No offense, guys. We love you. Don't worry about it. But um, for me, it's. Uh, I kind of like the mix of an up-down personally. This is just my opinion. You know, I, I get some time up in what we call the fishbowl mm-hmm. with all the windows, and I get to look outside. But then I get some time down in the dungeon, too, where mm-hmm. it's all dark and you're just staring at a screen all day. So, yeah. Um, you know, for me, I think that it, it's really just what you put into it. You can be successful anywhere if you put the work into it. So, Can you be – we mentioned you can, you can be trained in multiple positions within a facility, but um, – how does the time in between training work with that? Like, so they start you in a position and then does it progress from there? Yeah. So I'll just go through Bakersfield because every facility is different okay. based on. So let's say like LA Center, uh, you know, has 300 some odd controllers and they have, I believe it's, again, the center controllers are going to yell at me, but I think they have seven different sectors where you, you only work that sector your entire career unless you oh. transfer to another sector. Okay. So um, like the sector that we're bordered by has, 
I believe, five or six positions per that sector. And then there's, you know, other sectors and so on. Here at Bakersfield, we have five main positions. We have a ground control, works all the ground traffic. That's where you start. And then a local control or what t pilots call tower. Mm. And that's the next one. After you do that, we actually send you back to the academy, do basic radar training. Then we start you on our three radar sectors. We have a south, uh, north, and an arrival. So we have five sectors here. Each sector has a minimum amount of hours required of training before you have the ability to get a check ride and get certified. Got it. They have a maximum. If you hit the maximum, uh, you'll have a training team meeting, and management will decide whether to extend your hours or give you another check ride and see if you're ready to go, or you can be moved to a lower-level facility if you're not performing the way you want you, they want you to. Um, but so each one has different amount of hours. You know, the, the slower sectors, especially like tower here, I think they're 40 or 50 hours and then 70 hours. And then uh, the maximums are in the hundreds or something like that. But uh, usually once you're certified on a position, we give them at least 30 days of pro time hmm. just to work it before we start something else. So usually 30 days in between. What's that training process like for each position we do? Like, what does that entail? So training is, uh, you know, we're one of the smaller facilities, especially in California. We don't have simulators yet. Okay. Uh, we have some coming up here with the new system. But uh, so all of ours is done book work first and phraseology and rules and letters of agreement, what we call them, rules between different facilities. And then after that, it's all live traffic. So... Uh, the way it works for us is the trainee plugs in one slot with their headset, and if I was the trainer, I plug in right next to them into something called the override slot. Mm. And if the trainee's keyed up saying something wrong, I can key up my mic and immediately overkey them and fix it. I've so, heard that a couple of times. Yes, so. you have. You <laughs> most certainly have here. So um, we're a big training facility here. We had a ton of trainees. We're down to seven now. The highest number since I've been here was 19 at one wow, point. Wow, that's so, a lot. Yeah, so... Um, we do a ton of training here, but uh, all of it's done live traffic for us. So we have checklists kind of like you guys do. We go through all the you know specific points for that position, and we go through them. We check them off based on when you have it, and then at the end you spit it all back out, prove you know everything. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really just trying to get trainees in when there's traffic or when something special is going on, a weather day or something like that, mm -hmm. or construction for us right now. So, so Bakersfield is a class Delta Correct. Uh, air, uh, airport. What what classifies an airport as different uh, airspace uh, types? Going between Delta, Charlie's, and Bravo's, and Alpha's. Uh, Alpha's obviously above 180 for mm -hmm. you know the you know the high level stuff. It's really just traffic level and how much permission you need to enter okay. based on the amount of traffic we work. We're at Delta because we have two airports that are quite close. Right. Shafterminner, uh, about five, just outside five miles, and so is Bakersfield Municipal. So. Uh, being a Delta, those airports can be outside and people can depart or land those airports without having to talk to us. Right. So it's nice. If we had a Charlie, it'd probably be 20 miles and then everyone would have to talk to us, which yeah. we don't want to force anyone to talk to us. And, you know, for us, we're here just for safety and we're here for you guys if you want us. If you don't, that's fine. You, right. you won't really hurt my feelings <laughs> unless you say it to my face. Sure. But, um, you know, for, so that's the reason we're a Delta. You know, if we... Maybe if um, we get a huge influx of traffic or say, let's say Amazon picked Bakersfield mm -hmm. for their new headquarters. Maybe we would be upgrading in the next five years just based on traffic. But that's okay. pretty much it is traffic. So, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so within the, within the local facility that you're working at, are there different, I guess, uh, ranks or a specific chain of command that goes on? Absolutely. Um, so there's trainee controllers that 
uh, can only work the positions that they're certified on that by themselves. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of trainees right now that are certified in the tower so they can work each tower position by themselves, but they can't work downstairs by themselves. Okay. They have to be training or someone has to be watching them if they're newly certified. So there's trainees and then we call CPCs or certified professional controllers. And that is a fully certified controller in that facility or in their sector. It's like LA mm. Center in one of their sectors. So that means I'm a CPC. I can work every position by myself. Got it. Um, after that, uh, we have here specifically what we call a CS, which you get six months after you're certified in the tower, which is a cab supervisor. So I can go upstairs and supervise the tower cab if it gets too busy, where I don't actually talk to airplanes. I just monitor and make sure everyone's doing everything correctly. And we have an RS radar supervisor, same thing downstairs, mm -hmm. just a supervisor of the room. And then there is um, an OS or an ops soup. Um, when a supervisor, an actual FA supervisor is not here, one of us CPCs will be OS. And that just means we're in charge of the building when there's no supervisors or management here, essentially. So okay. um, like for me, I work my days off are Wednesdays and Thursdays. So I work Friday nights, 3 to 11. It's my Monday. Oh, okay. So there aren't any supervisors that want to work from 3 to 11 o'clock at night usually. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they're there based on staffing. Sometimes they're not. So I usually end up running the shift Friday night. All it means is I give assignments. I make sure everyone gets their breaks, their lunch breaks. I make sure everyone uh, is doing everything correctly. If we have any emergencies or issues, I do the paperwork, all the calls, stuff like that. So Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, you get an extra 10% for doing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. I, I would like more. <laughs> how does uh, so? How does scheduling work in general once you're placed at a facility? So scheduling wise, um, you know, I can only really talk for us. You know, we are open at Bakersfield from six a.m. to eleven p.m. Mm -hmm. every day, um, three hundred sixty-five or sixty-six days a year, whatever. Um, uh, so we we don't have any mid shifts, what we call them, or the overnight shifts. So for us, we rotate backwards here. Um, so to go through a shift, let's pretend you're Saturday, Sunday off. So you work Monday through Friday. Monday would be a 3 to 11. Tuesday would be a 1 to 9. Wednesday would be a 10 to 6. Uh, Thursday would be a 7.30 to 3.30. And then uh, Friday would be what we call an opener of 5.45 in the morning to 1.45. Okay. There's a couple of reasons we rotate. A, it's fair to everybody so that you know someone with high seniority can't pull all the night shifts or something mm. like that or can't pull all the day shifts. And it keeps us current in all the traffic. You know, you don't want right. someone working all nights and where we're really slow here and then get called in on an over, uh, overtime on a Wednesday afternoon and getting slammed and not being used to the traffic. That so, makes a lot of sense. So it's fair. Um, that's sort of, you know, that's pretty much what the schedule is like here. Uh, other bigger facilities are open 24-7. We'll do a rotation like that, but there'd be a mid-shift thrown in there somewhere. Okay. And they kind of decide at their own facility level how they want to do it, so... Um, but we all rotate. The hardest part is probably the sleep schedule for me, <laughs> you know, just getting used to falling asleep at a different time every day and yeah. a different schedule. But it's nice, you know, here specifically, you know, I get off on my Friday at 145 hmm. and I'm not back on my Monday until 315. So it's almost well, two and a half days off. So yeah. It's it's a that nice chunk out. of a weekend for sure. Yeah. In my in my career field right now, it's it's when I was working there full time, it was like that. It was, you can never, we didn't, and actually my next, my next question is how far in advance do you get your schedule? Because at where I worked, it was a week and a half in advance. So you could be put on overnights and all of a sudden day shifts and yeah. not know what to do with your life. So um, how, how does that schedule You know, work right out? now the schedule's kind of in shambles because of all the training we're doing. Sure. Usually it's three to four weeks out is what we try to get the schedule out for. That's nice. Um, they have to notify us. I believe it's within 
oh man, the other controllers are going to kill me. I think it's seven or 10 days. They have to verbally or notify me that they've changed my schedule. Okay. So I'm locked in at least a good week out of knowing when I'm going to be working. Okay. Through our standard ops here at Bakersfield, we between the union and management, we have an agreement that, you know, you'll start out with night shifts, two days, then a mid, and then uh, you'll have two morning shifts. So they won't always be the same times, but you'll never come in on a 545 okay. based on the agreement that we have together through the management here. Hmm. So that's nice. Um, what's the typical process to, I guess, handling emergencies on a field and like the different, maybe there's different kind of training involved in that. There is. There, we do a ton of training for emergencies, okay. mainly because, you know, there's safety is number one for us, obviously. You yeah. know, safety, orderly, and then expeditious. So uh, first thing, safety. Second is always first come, first serve. And then third is, you know, as fast as we can get you guys there right. if you want it, you know, unless you're training and doing circles or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, the emergencies, this is something we could, you know, you learn so much even in my four years here. You learn from every single one you have, and every single one is different. Uh, you know, I've had emergencies where it's an engine loss and just out of the blue, you know, and then I've had other emergencies where they've lasted 30, 40 minutes where they're trying to, like a gear issue, where they're trying to work the problem, get the gear down, get the gear up, so on and so forth. Right. So uh, each one is totally different. You know, the main thing we need is who you are, your type aircraft, and what do you want to do? The nature of the emergency, what do you want to do? That's all I need. You know, I, I'm on fire, I want to land and I'll get you the closest <laughs> airport. Right. Or I got a gear issue, I want to do a low approach. Okay, well, we'll look at it. Um, one one I had maybe two months ago or so was a gear issue in a private jet, and uh, they wanted to do a low approach, they wanted to work the issue, they wanted to burn some fuel on the hold, and they wanted us to call them a tug because they didn't want to try to turn off the runway either. So mm -hmm. we can do all that. You know, we did all that. The tug was waiting for them when they landed. That's good. And they tugged them in. So, um, But really, it's it's really just... Uh, when you declare an emergency, you get everything we can give you. And I, you know, it's it's funny that you guys don't see on the other side. As soon as we page in the facility, I got an emergency in the tower. You'll see controllers on break, you know, coming up and trying to help and stuff like that. You get absolutely everything you got. So basically, all hands on deck. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. When there's something that happens at the field itself, um, we have a fire station here on the we field. Do. Station right? 62 is what we call it. Yeah. So how does um, the communication and the the flow of, of work happen once an emergency? So I'll go through. We we have four levels of alerts here, and this is just specific to us. Anyone that flies around Bakersfield, you do not have to call up with the alert you're having. Just say, hey, I got a problem. I got an emergency. Or mayday, mayday, mayday. Right. We have three levels of alerts and then a medical emergency. So alert one is a minor difficulty. You know, you got a panel stuck open. Um, some bad indication in the cockpit, but you still have total control of the airplane. You're not afraid of losing control of the airplane. Mm. Um, maybe like a rough running engine on a dual engine aircraft, we probably call an alert one, so on and so forth. Alert two is major difficulty, anything to do with gear, anything to do with oil, low oil, um, high oil temp, gas issues, leaking fuel, out of fuel, you know, something like that, or any gear issue, losing an engine. If you lose one, even on a you know, a four-engine airplane, we'll probably call an alert too, just because we don't know if you're going to lose more right. sort of deal. And then alert three is an actual accident or incident on the airport. So that means an accident, uh, a gear collapse, um, or exiting the runway surface when you're not in control. You slide off the end, slide off the side, something mm -hmm. like that. And then the medical emergency is when we have a medical emergency with a passenger on an airplane. So we have different um, criteria for all. The first thing that will happen is whenever we have an emergency is 
we pick up something that we've ironically named the crash phone in the tower. <laughs> it's connected to um, the Air, uh, Station 62, the fire station here on field, uh, airport police, and it's attached to uh, Kern County Emergency Dispatch. So I pick up the phone, and I'm hot with all three of them right away. It's actually pretty neat. When I pick up the phone, it even opens the garage doors on the fire station. Oh, floor. wow. That's so, cool. Uh, and what we immediately do is just say what we have inbound. Alert to inbound, Cessna, call sign, nature of the emergency, where they are, what runway they're landing, and when they're going to be there. Hmm. And that's what we do. Uh, there's different criteria for when the trucks will roll out and stage and where they'll stage and what happens. Um, you know, alert one, they just sit in the trucks and they're just on standby. Mm-hmm. You know, they just wait. If we upgrade it, they'll come out. Alert two, they'll actually come out, stage on the runway at specific places and be ready. And alert three, the entire airport closes and they can drive anywhere they want. And I mean, if we have an alert three, they'll drive across the grass, through, you know, whatever, across all taxiways, all movement areas, Mm -hmm. everything. So the main reason for the alert three is we want, you know, obviously if there's an incident, we want emergency response to get there as quick as they can. But the city also brings in city trucks that are not, don't have radios, don't Mm -hmm. know how to talk to us. So... As soon as Alert 3 happens, you'll hear everybody stops on the airport and you'll see trucks that are just driving wherever they want. I was going to ask that if, if they bring the city brings in trucks. They do. They do. So usually Alert 2, you know, this is a city thing and um, I don't know enough about it. This is their protocol. We went to visit them, a couple of controllers and I, just to see what happens. And they have a huge laminated spreadsheet of what they're going to call in based on what the emergency is. So oh. um, that's their criteria. During Alert 2, they usually just stage right outside the airport gates and just wait to be called in. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, they do call an extra. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize there was so much. Well, I, I guess I figured there was a lot of coordination involved in emergency. There but, is. Yeah, there is. But that's that's but don't, crazy. Don't let that stop anyone from declaring. I mean, yeah. um, in the other presentations that I give to the pilots around here, um, even, you know, the biggest thing that people are afraid of, A, does it cost anything? The mm. answer is no. Right. B is the paperwork that if you get something from FISDO or something like that. Mm-hmm. I called FISDO and asked. Usually all they do is they call you and just make sure the problem was fixed or figure out why it happened. You know, don't ever be afraid of being contacted by the FAA to get paperwork or anything like that. All they're trying to do is make sure it's fixed. Hmm. And all we want is safety. So if you have a problem, just tell us. I mean, I even tell pilots, if you're down to one radio, you know, and you can't pick up the ATIS without switching, just tell me. You know, I, I can read you the ATIS if I have to. Yeah. But I can't read you the ATIS, and I won't unless you tell me I need you. I sure. need to. So yeah. if you ever have an issue and you're a pilot, just Tell us. That's all we want to know. Well, it's good to know. I'm sure most of us would do that anyway. Um, let's talk a little bit about NACA and what exactly that is. NACA is the National Air Traffic Controllers Association. It's the essentially the Air Traffic Controllers Union. Um, it's a collaborative process um, that we can join if we want to join. You don't have to join if you don't want to. They represent us if we ever need representing with uh, labor issues or anything like that, any contract issues that we have between us and the government. Uh, and they're there really just to promote safety. You, you'll find, I think, the majority of controllers are in it. Um, it's it's not really, I don't feel like it's like my personal opinion. The other unions that are out there, we're rarely, really, you know, we work really well with the FAA. The FAA works really well with us. Um, it's just another aspect to the safety side of trying to keep stuff safe for everybody. So. Right. They uh, And they kind of act as support for you, I'm assuming, if yeah. there's ever any issues. You if handle. there's an issue, um, especially, you know, if, if there's an accident or an incident and you need, you know, any help with it, any help with paperwork, anything like that, 
or any emotional help or anything like that, they're there for you too. So, does it operate like a normal union where you have um, like you pay into it? An we do. We pay dues and... for it. Yeah, just a due off of every paycheck, and that's it. I don't even remember what the percentages anymore. Okay. It's one of those <laughs> things I signed up for. I knew I was going to join right away, and yeah. Uh, if you join right away, you'll never feel the pain. So right. Yeah, it's pretty it. standard. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm part of a union as well from my job. Yeah. And it all works the same way. Um, so we know a lot about the current pilot shortage is happening. One of the reasons why I'm at the school I'm at right now, and a lot of people are jumping into um, the pilot side of the careers. Do you see similar things happening in the ATC world? Is, do you think there's a shortage of controllers or a need for controllers? There's always a need. Um, we're, we're in that process of, so we age out at 54, or sorry, 56. Okay. We're, we're done. So at 56, you're retired. So when uh, we had the strike, you know, 30-odd years ago, they picked up a bunch of new controllers, and all those controllers are slowly getting towards that point where they have to retire. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you will see a big change in the workforce. We do need controllers. Um, the one thing I always recommend to everybody, if it sounds at, you know, at any point sounded interesting to you, just apply. Mm-hmm. You know, take you 20, 30 minutes to fill out everything online, USA Jobs. And if you get it, you can try it. If you, you know, get to the academy and you don't like it, you can quit. If you get to your facility and you don't like it, you can quit. If you get five years in and you don't like it, you can quit. You know? Right. But uh, it's a really good job, good pay, good benefits. Um, the biggest thing for me is every day is just different you know right uh, i've worked a lot of jobs where it's the same thing every single day and it drives me nuts where i come in every day and you don't know what's going to show up you know you don't know what's going to happen you don't mm-hmm. know what the weather's going to be like or anything like that so uh, it really keeps it quite fresh which is nice for me is there a is there a cost involved to someone who wants to be atc or go through the training or is it all pretty much done by it's all done so as soon as you get hired by the academy you're being paid awesome i believe it's um i think when you get hired it's thirty eight thousand. Uh, so you're just an hourly rate, but yeah, you're getting paid. So that's why you can try it. You can go through all through the Academy and you'll still be making a paycheck. And if you quit, quit, you know, it's so oh. the hardest part right now is getting selected and getting in. So if you're at all interested, apply and keep updating your application every six months or so. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, but let's say somebody, um, their, their life dream was to work, uh, like LA center, right? Yeah. Um, we said they don't necessarily get a choice and where they start out with how would they end up getting there if they really wanted to get there? So what everyone's trying to do right now is transfer. So okay. um, once you're fully certified in your facility, you can transfer or put in paperwork to try to transfer to another facility. Um, if your facility has enough staffing to let you go and the other facility wants you and they select you, you'll get a release date and you transfer. Okay. And then you just start training there. So if someone wants to go to LA Center, absolutely. They can just uh, put in their paperwork for LA Center and then hopefully get picked up and then off they go. Cool. But it's all kind of situational based at that point. It's really based on staffing. Like right now we're not at the staffing to let anybody go. We Mm -hmm. don't have enough people. So people want to leave, but we can't. So (laughs) got it. uh, that, that can, you know, but it's kind of like you just, you get in, put in your time and then when it's your time to go, it's your time to go sort of deal. Cool. Cool. So uh, what sort of technological advancements can we see happening with ATC over the next few years or even what's happening right now with the next gen and everything? We were talking about this before we started. We're in the middle here at Bakersfield of our next gen upgrade. Mm -hmm. Next gen is the national program to update all of air traffic. Okay. Um, Essentially what we're doing is we're going from an old 80s system, what we call green round dial. It's a green screen that's looks like all the from all the movies you saw in the 80s with air traffic in it. And, yeah. Uh, we're going to a full digital system with uh, digital radar feeds, um, better displays, a ton of more options for us. 
uh, and a bunch of more, you know, usability for us. On the pilot side, other than ADS-B, you won't see the difference as much when you're flying. Um, the service will just get way better. Okay. So here at Bakersfield, for people who don't know, um, we're a fishbowl approach, essentially. You know, we've got mountains all around us. Yeah. So terrain is a real issue for us mm-hmm. with uh, the radar coverage. Right now we're single sensor, so we only work off the radar we have here at the field. When this upgrade's all plugged in, everything's working great, we're going to switch over to something that's called Fusion, which will fuse uh, Bakersfield's primary radar, Paso Robles, which is to the northwest, a center radar, and then Boron, which is out near Edwards, southeast, a center radar, and ADS-B, and they're going to fuse them all into one feed. So right now we're single sensor feed, and every update's 4.6 seconds. That's every time your airplane Mm -hmm. updates on the scope. When we go to Fusion, we're going to get one-second updates. So your plane will update every second, which is huge. Yeah. You know, it's a huge for uh, traffic calls and turns on to final and a stuff like accurate. that. accurate. Absolutely, way more accurate. But on top of that, with the new radar feeds, we're also going to be able to see to the ground in places we can't see on a single sensor now because we're using three instead of one. Mm-hmm. So for the pilot, that's what you guys will notice is your coverage up north will be way better. Your coverage in the valleys will be way better because we have multiple feeds coming in. So that's what we're really, really excited for is, um, I mean, obviously the, the new screens and the reliability of a new screen. I mean, the stuff that we're working on now is sold. It mm-hmm. has reliability issues. But um, not only is it LCD and I can change my colors, I can change my fonts, I can you know, have all my preferential settings set in so I can just click one button and the whole screen changes instead of screwing knobs right. and turning stuff and mm-hmm. standing <laughs> on one leg, stuff like that. Um, and all the you know gizmos we get with it, um, the service that you guys will get out of it will be huge. That's cool. So we're looking really forward to what, it. Yeah. What's the what's the training or the familiarization process with new equipment when you get so it? So here personally, and I think this is pretty much nationwide, is uh, it's it's a really long process. Um, as you guys know, if you work in a facility that's open every single day, you can't take two or three weeks off to swap equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, so what they've been doing over the last year and a half is installing all the new equipment, installing all the new wiring, all of the new displays and everything like that are being set up. And then overnight on June 18th, they're going to pull all the old stuff out and plug all the new stuff in. <laughs> and then the next morning we will launch on the new stuff. What could possibly go wrong? I know, right? <laughs> but the, you know, that's the thing. They're doing a very good job. And I think we're number, we're in the 70s. I don't remember, maybe 76 out of 90 some odd facilities that need it. So they have it, you know, really wired down pretty good. Right. Um, but it's a really long process. A lot of work goes into it. Um, I'm the controller side rep for it, and I had no idea how much work went into something like this. It's amazing. Well, it's got to be a great learning experience to see all the yeah, back end of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I learned everything about the system, which is great. So for us, um, we have three people that we call cadres, three controllers that we picked that are learning the whole system, every single function. So that's what we've been doing for the last two weeks is even functions that we would never use here, we're going to learn so we know them. And then us three will teach the rest of the controllers here over the next two weeks the functions that we feel we need here. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's obviously books and um, online learning that they can go through and learn every function if they want to. But the stuff that we use here specifically is what we're going to teach so that when we come June 18th, everyone's up to speed and ready to go for it. So, cool. Uh, a lot of training in the last, or in the month, this month, this May is a bad month for yeah. training. Here, so. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. That's crazy. 
Um, well, I have a couple listener questions, if you will. Some questions submitted from others that wanted to uh, All right, know the answers. Bring it. <laughs> All right. So one of the questions is, um, what are some of your biggest pet peeves that pilots do? Um, you know, I don't really have pet peeves per se. You know, we're an interesting facility, as you know, because you fly here. Mm-hmm. And you're one of the airplanes we work daily. Right. Uh, we don't work a lot of commercial traffic. We have three airports commercially that this airport flies to. And they fly three or four times a day a piece. And the rest is all private or single engine or dual engine traffic here, private jets and stuff. So um, for us, it's real different. You know, uh, we're a big training facility, but we have a lot of trainers in the airspace, too. So yeah. um, maybe something that the big trade cons would have pet peeves was we don't hear because we're really used to it, you know, mm-hmm. with um, phraseology or readbacks or something like that. Um, I'd say my biggest pet peeve or something that uh, could really just be the worst thing a pilot could do is guess. Okay. Uh, so if you ever have a question or question something we said, ask. So if I say to send and maintain 5,000 and you're sitting there with your student saying, he say five or four. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think he said four. We'll just go to four. Don't do that. Okay. <laughs> even if I sound busy, even if I sound angry, even if you think I'm going to yell at you, <laughs> key up and ask, did you say five or four? Because that's a, that's a big deal for us. Yeah. All right. Um, another big thing I guess I would say is... Um, even going back to that, if you need us to talk slower, mm. instead of guessing or say again, say again, you can just key up and say, hey, can you say that slower? And I will. The problem with us is the busier we get, the faster we talk. Sure. And we don't notice it because our minds are yeah, going just, a million miles an hour and there's yeah. airplanes all over the place. So uh, if you just key up and say, hey, can you say that slower? And we will. Or something like if you guys, for, uh, if you're flight training, you're on your first solo, just call the tower and say, hey, I'm going up in this call sign for my first solo. Mm-hmm. And we'll be very gingerly with you. <laughs> give you lots of space and stuff like that. That's good. So That's good. The more we know, the better we can paint the picture for you guys. True. Yeah, well, communication is key, right? I mean, Absolutely. And we have radios for a reason. And uh, you're right. I think people do get, well, especially students uh, starting out in their training. Yeah. They're already super nervous to talk on the radio. Yeah. And then once they're actually up in the air, they, they're like, well, I know what I'm supposed to say and what I'm supposed to say. I don't want to say anything extra. I don't want to ask any questions yeah. because they, you might, they might get an answer that they've never heard before and they don't yeah. have to process that. So if, again, if you get something you don't understand, I don't understand what you want me to say. You know, I, I had one a while ago that, uh, I told the aircraft to turn downwind and he didn't understand what I meant. I, I repeated myself. I said, say again, I said, turn downwind. He said, I, I don't understand. So I just gave him a heading, turn right, heading 120. Right. Boom. He's like, oh, I got it. Oh, I get it now. Mm. I'm in the down one. So, Interesting. Something like that. So one of the other questions I have is um, when it comes to flight following, requesting flight following. So we can do that here at this airport on the ground, right? We can get flight following. Um, but how do you know an airport can provide that? Um, that's hard. You know, it depends, especially in the state of California, because there's only five TRACONs in California. There's Bakersfield, there's Fresno. Santa Barbara, and then there's NorCal, which is the size of a state, and then mm-hmm. there's SoCal, which is the size of a state. And NorCal and SoCal both cover, you know, multitude of airports, right? Um, the easiest thing for you guys that are out there flying and you don't know is to ask the ground controller, do I set up flight following with you or would it be approach? Mm-hmm. And if they can't, get the frequency from them to do it. Um, here at Bakersfield, uh, it's just something we've always done. We have the time to do it, um, so we set it up on the ground here. Yeah, because there's been a couple airports that I've been to where I've flown in, landed, went over to the run-up area, got a flight following clearance, took off, went out. Went to that same airport later, and the controller say they don't do that. 
So it, is it could that be a technique? Okay. Um, that's the one thing is all controllers think they're right. <laughs> so everyone does it their own way and everyone interprets things their own way. Uh, it could be equipment outage stuff too. You know, you could have gone there when their feed was down to the tracon, they couldn't do put anything in or something like that. Or it could be workload based. I mean, it's happened to me before where, you know, aircraft have called for practice approaches or something like that. And, um, you'll know it's me when I say, call me back in 10 minutes, which means I don't have time to do a practice approach right now. Mm -hmm. Maintain VFR and call me back in 10 minutes. By then, I hopefully have cleared up whatever was going on. Right. So it could have been one of those three things. Okay. It could be uh, the controller. It right. could be equipment outage or it could be a traffic load. Yeah, because I don't want to reply back with, well, the last guy did it last time I I wouldn't here. recommend doing that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, then they're definitely not going to help you out at that point. And the last question I have is about IFR clearances. So typically you get an IFR clearance and then you get a release and that's how you depart the airport. Now, if the airport is closed, however, you still have to get an IFR release before you leave. Correct. So my question is, if you're taking off into VFR conditions, let's say, even though you already got a clearance, mm -hmm. do you still have to get a release before you leave? So if you want your IFR off the ground, mm -hmm. Then yes, you will have to still need you'll still need a release. Okay. So if you wanted to part, let's say one of our satellite airports you're familiar with, Porterville. Yeah. If you wanted to part off the ground, IFR, you need to get a release and your clearance on the ground. Now, if you want to pick it up in the air, you don't have to do that at all. You can depart VFR, call us up in the air. I got a flight plan on file, and we'll give you the clearance in the air. Okay. But yeah. And if you've already received the clearance and you said, ah, I'm not going to depart IFR so, anymore. So, yeah, if you wanted to depart VFR, that's something we can work out. Mm -hmm. But it's something that I really recommend you explain and not just do. Right, because that'd be confusing. you then Absolutely. contact departure or something. you pop up, because what happens is when you have an IFR clearance, there's a difference in our data blocks that show you IFR or mm -hmm. VFR. And if you just pop up IFR, those are the ones that we require separation. So right. IFR separation for us here at the Tracon is 1,000 feet vertically, or three miles laterally. So if you pop up and have another IFR above you or something like that, you're gonna scare me. <laughs> yeah, okay, that makes sense. But you can't, I've had a couple here who have um, picked up an IFR and then when they taxed it out, they just realized, I just wanna go VFR. Hmm. And if you just say, hey, can we just depart VFR? I'll just tell your IFR clearance is canceled on departure, maintain VFR, clear for takeoff, and then I'll amend it in the system and, and the TRACON will know. Got so. it. Yeah. What, so what is the on the, the back end, the behind the scenes? What's happening when someone gets an IFR clearance or gets a via, uh, you know a flight following, anything like that? So we type it into our system. Um, easiest way to say is we have a keyboard. Mm -hmm. Type in your call sign, where you're departing, where you're going to, your type aircraft, and then puts it in the system. It prints out on the super special printer with your uh, call sign, type aircraft, beacon code, uh, your proposed time, VFR, IFR where you're departing and where you're going. Okay. And that's where I get your beacon code from. So then I tell you to squawk 4666, let's mm -hmm. say. You guys type in the transponder. That strip, that physical strip, and not all facilities use them anymore, but we do here still, is a legal document. Just mm -hmm. like all everything we say on uh, voice is recorded for 45 days. All the radar is recorded for 45 days. And those strips are saved for 45 days. And we do strip marking on those strips as we you fly through the airspace. So okay. they follow you through the airspace, then we file them and save them for 45 days. Um, there's different strip marking for altitudes, practice approaches, stuff like that. That's an in-house thing we do here. Every facility does it differently. Mm -hmm. But uh, some facilities um, have strip lists where it's all digital screens and stuff like that, but right. we're old school. 
Yeah, I've seen some of those fancy places. It's yeah, all touch the fancy they places. Around. Yeah, they have all the, the fun <laughs> stuff. That's for sure. Uh, cool. So, so what's next for you? Uh, plan on staying here or? Um, so the one thing about Bakersfield is everyone's trying to get out, even though it's a beautiful city and you know it's the air air taste and great. Yeah, you know. You know, uh, I'm an East Coast guy. I grew up in Cleveland, went to school in Florida, so I'd, I'd like to get back to Florida or Georgia. So I'm trying to get back that way. But uh, we're not staffing to go anywhere yet. So uh, other than that, just working and training. Cool. That's, that's pretty much all we do here. Cool. I recommend everybody out there, if you're a pilot or looking to be a pilot, um, look up in the AFD or look it up online. Find your local facilities number and ask for a tour. Go in and see what they do. Yeah. You know, it's nice. We have a lot of pilots here that will take our controllers up with them so we can see the other side. The more you can learn from the other side, the the better it will be for everybody. So yeah, it's pretty it's it's pretty eye opening too. You know, we I've, I've been in our tower, I've been in a couple other towers as well, and even just that, seeing the difference between different types of towers and yeah. and the 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 flow of what everyone's doing is pretty crazy. And and you think, oh, you're just talking to this person, they're behind a desk, but then when you actually get up there and see them talking and handling the traffic, it's kind of like, well, they got a lot to do. Yeah, <laughs> go out there, see a tower, see a tracon, see a center, see one of each if you can. It's they really are different worlds and they do things differently. And I guarantee you'll learn something from every one of them. So cool. Well, well, Mike, thanks so much for coming thanks today for and uh, being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. And as always, thank you all for listening. If you like the show, go ahead and give a rating and review on iTunes. And of course, tell your friends. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, send an email to feedback at v1podcast.com. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. I'm Nick Herring, and we'll see you next time on V1 The Podcast. <laughs>